I've been successful because I've been able to identify individuals that know what they're doing and I do business with them. And I've realized as a general contractor or any business that turnover quickly moving from one project to another project to another project is how I make my wealth, is how I make my money. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Welcome, everyone, to today's show. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from the sunny Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I have a very interesting guest, Ven Sturgeon. So he actually currently lives in Toronto, but he splits his life between Chicago, Toronto, and Miami Beach, and we both share passion for that area, I think, especially during the cold you know, days of the year. So a little bit about Ven. He's principal of 365 Property Management. He's principal of Greywood Homes since 2004, and he's director of operations for VS Acquisition Holding, and he's a principal of Greywood Restoration since 2012. So you can see he's accomplished a lot, which is very impressive. And on top of that, Van is only a high-performance coach, and he's helping homeowners and real estate investors renovating their homes without a contractor. So you can imagine that that can save them thousands of dollars, if not more. And to date, he has renovated and built thousands of homes, apartments, condos, and commercial buildings. So he owns over a 1,000 rental units across North America, and he also has a BA in business management and marketing from the University of Toronto. Welcome to the show, Ben. I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you very much, Ellie, for having me. Like I like all of those things that you listed off about me. Like it's like who's that guy? So <laughs> yes, thank you very much for for the intro, and I look forward to having a great interview with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the, our listeners would love to hear a little bit about your background. And, you know, I know that you've been involved in real estate, or at least aware of it since childhood. Can you walk me through kind of what happened then and how you got introduced, you know, to real estate? Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a product of the uh, 60s, born and raised in Chicago, to immigrant parents who we lived in one bedroom apartment in Chicago. And my parents dream, like most people, is to save up enough money to be able to purchase their first dream home. So as they're working their little tails off, gathering all their monies together for that, they discovered that the apartment building that we were renting from, they were living in, had gone up for sale. So they borrowed money, put all their money together, and they put down a down payment and purchased that apartment building. So instead of buying their dream home, they became landlords. And that happened in the late 70s. And during that period of time, it was a in our neighborhood, it was a vibrant, it was a great neighborhood. And but what happened was as soon as they made that purchase, things started to turn in the, the economy and just in the area in general. There was this mass migration out of the city into the suburbs. The economy was very bad. It was a rent hostage situation. Interest rates were 18, 20%. 
And this beautiful little neighborhood that, you know, in Chicago started to deteriorate and you started to see the criminal elements moving in. And then all of a sudden, this building that was fully occupied started to suffer 60, 50% vacancy rate. It's really, really bad. So you can imagine if you are, you know, you just got into a property and you have a mortgage and you've got all these expenses and overhead, it was really difficult for our family to hold on. Literally in our neighborhood, it was potmarked with the buildings that were torched, that were set on fire mm. by landlords who couldn't hold onto their properties because of how dramatically things got bad so quickly and they just couldn't hold on. You know, when you have vacancy rates that, that spiked that quickly and interest rates were as high as they were back then, landlords had no resort but to literally set their buildings on fire and collect insurance money. So under that whole thing growing up there in the late 70s, early 80s, we as a family had to do everything that we could to keep this investment going. And it was, we did all the work ourselves, whether it's painting, plastering, replacing carpet, hardwood floor refinishing, roof work, whatever it was that we could do, we did so that we could save, you know, save money. We couldn't hire people. We had to do it all ourselves. So it was from that background that I came from an appreciation for real estate and rehabbing and renovating and construction. So we were able to get through. It was, a, it was a great investment. Ultimately, it was a great investment that my family made, as all real estate is, of course. I went off to university, and then I came back home. My parents were hoping that I was going to be a lawyer, and I actually got accepted to be to law school. But I really was passionate. I really enjoyed this whole general contracting, renovating construction side. I, I have that type of a brain. I have a gift. So I broke the bad news to my parents and went off in you know, the late 80s, early 90s to start my general contracting business in Chicago. And that's what things sort of snowball from there. Interesting. Very interesting. So, you know, I think most investors that I've spoken with, they were the first generation into real estate, kind of looking at their parents and saying, I want something different. So it's really interesting that you had the I don't know if privilege is, is the right word, but you had that amazing experience. And it's really interesting that your parents actually, especially back then, had kind of the foresight and the courage to buy a building. It's not a given because most young families are thinking about buying their home and, and taking a loan for, you know, to buy, you know, one door, one home where they can raise their kids. So they probably have that entrepreneurial spirit and, and business mindset to some extent that kind of rubbed off, you know, on you. So I think it's very, very interesting. You know, it's it's really interesting that that kind of set up your path. And I hope that they didn't take it too hard when you broke the news to them that you did not want to become a lawyer. Back then uh, they did because they, they couldn't understand the screwball son of theirs that, you know, had this opportunity and then he squandered it and decided he wanted yeah. to grab a hammer and go out there on the hustle, but I've done pretty well for myself. So they're, they're okay. They're, they're okay they're with okay. the decision. <laughs> but you know what? Their experience actually isn't any different than what's happening now with this house hacking business where mm-hmm. you know folks will buy a home and will rent out the basement or the rooms in, the, in their home. And my parents did that and maybe multiplied, you know, 10x it in terms yeah. of like the size of the investment. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon that's happening right now as we speak with this house hacking. That's very much true. That's very much true. Well, then let's talk a little bit about assets. And you've been involved with single family homes, with condos, multifamily homes, with commercial real estate. Which one of those asset classes do you prefer? 
In my early days, I loved new construction. I loved being able to take something that's concept on a piece of paper and then put it to you know build it. So I've done everything that's under the sun in terms of real estate, whether it's building custom homes, subdivisions to also condominiums as well. And just that whole side, in terms of it is the area that is wrought with most risk because there's over the span of over that period of time that you're developing a property, you're talking about several years in development. The market can change, interest rates can change. There's a lot of factors that come into play. So it is wrought with the most risk, but at the same time, it also provides the greatest bang for your buck in terms of ROI, if you can see the process through. So my gift and my what I really enjoy is, is problem solving, is creating those things. And I've been blessed with that. So I enjoy walking into a construction site and understanding how things are put together. And so on that side is where I, that's what I enjoy. That being said, now the later part of my life, I like my investments. I love my, you know, I've got probably close to around 1200 doors now. I enjoy that because Again, I love structures. I love those types of assets. And I have single family all the way up to multifamily. So I've got a diverse portfolio in four different markets in North America, Michigan, Ohio, New Brunswick, and then also Florida. And each one has its own uniqueness that separates it from others. And really, you can break asset classes if if you're into appreciation and cash flow. So I have a mixture of both. What I always suggest for new real estate investors who get into this is to identify properties that produce cash flow, that you can sleep well at night. You know that you've got enough on reserve, you've got enough uh, in terms of putting stocking away for capex, and you've got you can sleep well at night. You know that even if you've suffered a vacancy, you're able to ride out the storm. But ultimately, the reason why I have achieved X amount of dollars in that value is because of appreciation. Cash flow can, in the beginning, can get you so far. But ultimately, if you really want to get to the point where you have earned significant dollars value, you need to transition into acquiring a mixture of cash flow, but also appreciating properties. I've made my mistakes along the way, and I've learned from them. And that's one of the things that I've, I've realized if I had hindsight that I would be spending, I would have spent more time in those areas that appreciate in value more so than going out for cash flow because I love cash flow. But if you really want to create wealth, you need to get into appreciating properties. I can definitely relate to that. And I think, you know, when I'm looking at the US, there are three types, generally speaking, of markets. You have the core markets like, you know, LA, New York, San Francisco, which with the exception of COVID, they're pretty much an appreciation, you know, market. So you don't get much cash flow. Maybe it's even negative. But when you sell, you can sell at a very, very high price. And it's mostly an appreciation play. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the Midwest. And the Midwest is very strong when it comes to cash flow, but prices are kind of flat. So you can't expect a lot of appreciation when you sell the property. And then in between, these are my favorite markets, which, you know, you can put the Southeast there, you know, Texas, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, where you have some of both. You have assets that can produce, you know, 5 to 9% cash on cash on a yearly basis. But when you exit, you can exit at 30 I actually seen all the way to 100% appreciation, especially in, in today's you know market. So you're absolutely right. You do make money on the cash flow, but it's not what's going to make you extremely 
wealthy, the big check is when you do sell. So I like those markets where you can sleep well at night because you know there's cash flow coming coming in. But the big check is really when you exit. So you have appreciation, but also cash flow. And that combination, in my opinion, is very, very powerful. I agree with you. So I recommend to new real estate investors who are looking at that first, you know, sticking their toe into a market that they should really concentrate on something, acquiring something that's got, you know, cash flow and and not worry so much about depreciation. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. you need to get that appreciation into your portfolio to really see wealth creation. The problem with jumping into appreciating areas or sectors or uh, is that uh, one wrong move, one miscalculation, as you had touched on, you know, your negative cash flow. And then all of a sudden for some, something, you know, CapEx, something pops up out of the blue or a vacancy rate a spike. And then you're really, really deeping into your pocket. And some people can't survive that. For example, what's happening now with this pandemic, I am very sure in, that there are landlords out there who got in prior to the pandemic was really, really skinny deals. And now mm-hmm. they're sweating and they got problems because they yep. can't meet their overhead expenses because of, you know, vacancy, not vacancy, but I'm sorry, but, you know, this, this moratorium on evictions. Yeah. And delinquencies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the process part in your business. And, you know, as I mentioned before, and you've talked about it, you are very passionate about renovations. What advice would you give to syndicators and to investors who are actually active at buying and managing their assets? When it comes to multifamily, what would be your advice regarding improving the renovation process? Because it can be very lengthy, you know, it can be very costly. And there are always ways, especially if you know you're you're the expert when it comes to renovations. So what advice would you give investors? when it comes to improving their process? Sure. Well, obviously there are different types of renovation rehabbing that can be done to any property. So if we're to concentrate on multifamily where you have a 48 unit kind of apartment building, there are the cosmetic sides that we do to increase rents. And then there's things that we have to do to common areas that just because of the age, you know, wear and tear, we have to address. Usually, and if you get into CapEx where balconies need to be renovated or there's underground garages that are leaking, those are things that you would involve an architect, an engineer to be able to create a document called a scope of work. And it's based off that document, then you go out there to tender. When you're dealing with cosmetics, I often find on multifamily that the same kind of steps that you would do on those types of heavy capex expenditures they're not doing on the cosmetic side where you're looking at an individual suite and you're looking to upgrade the kitchen the bathroom whatever it is that you're looking to do in order to raise rents on that particular property should be standardized in a formal document that's very detailed and it provides the specifications the processes what it is that needs to be done in that property because ultimately, once you have that, you've been able to crystallize all of those intentions of what you want to produce in that particular suite, then you can go out to tender and compare apples to apple quotes from all the general contractors, tradespeople, whatever direction you want to go. And often find that that is a missing component. And as a result, causes a lot of chaos. Projects that last longer than they should cost overruns because they don't take that initiative to be able to create that detailed scope of work. So obviously, before you start any type of a project, you should do your due diligence. And oftentimes, there's a lack of that. 
you got to create clear goals associated with what it is that you're looking to do. So if it's on a single family side, if you're going to flip a house, establish what it is that you're looking to make. If you're going to rent out a single family home, if it's $1,200 a month, for example, you got to write that goal down. And then even on the multifamily side, you got to go out there and validate that goal. You got to get out in the marketplace. You got to walk around and you can do a lot through the computer, through the internet, but nothing beats the old fashioned going out there, looking into houses, apartments, walking in there and understanding why these properties are able to get X amount of dollars and then get that information and apply that to yours, validate your goal. Once you've been able to do that, then you need to do an assessment, a physical assessment of the property itself. And what I recommend is creating a needs and wants list. Needs are things that have to be done to the property. You know, if you got a hole in the roof and water's pouring in, that's a need. You got to address that as soon as possible. Wants are things that you would like to get done, but not necessarily are necessary. So if you're walking into an apartment where you have parquet hardwood floor and you would love, because it's not very modern nowadays, you'd love to have that strip hardwood floor, that's a want to rip it out and put new one in. But and then depending on the budget that you establish, perhaps you might go that direction and rip that parquet floor out and install strip hardwood. But if you don't have the kitty money in the kitty, then you don't address that. So it, ultimately, it's really important to create a goal and every action that you are going to take undertake in that property should be filtered through that goal to be able to make sure that we're all aligned and ultimately all our energy is focused on getting us to the goal in the most quickest and least expensive process. That makes a lot of sense. And sometimes... From my experience, it takes time to create that process. And some investors skip that phase because they want to get into the work as quick as possible. But then later down the line, it actually takes them more time to renovate and it costs them more because they skip that one very, very important part of due diligence and you know creating a process and setting up the goals. And I think it's very, very important. If your goal is to flip a unit within a week, And your contractor thinks they have three weeks and you did not communicate what you thought was obvious. You know, of course, I want to renovate it and flip it and, you know, put it back in the market as soon as possible. Just communicating those goals, that's an extremely important part of of the process. And I'm a huge process, you know, person and I, I love improving processes. And I think this is absolutely, you know, very, very crucial tip of creating a process and communicating that with all the stakeholders to make sure that you can basically run as smoothly as possible. Even if it takes more time to create that process, it's definitely, definitely worth it. Ellie, it starts there because ultimately I'm a general contractor and I know that if I were to receive a phone call or request to quote or bid on something, I immediately want to know what is it that this individual has done in terms of their due diligence? Are they prepared to move forward in relation to have they made those specific decisions so that the process is streamlined and we don't have any issues or hiccups. I've been successful because I've been able to identify individuals that know what they're doing and I do business with them. And I've realized as a general contractor or any business that turnover quickly moving from one project to another project to another project is how I make my wealth, is how I make my money. And there's only a certain amount of period of time in the year that you can do construction-related kind of work. You know, Christmas time and winter, all that kind of stuff plays a part and things slow down. So we as contractors only have a set period of time. That's why we're so busy during periods of time where we can't, we don't know, we're like running around like with chickens and our heads cut off. And there's times where we are, you know, twilling our thumbs. 
So when I receive a call, I want to see people prepared to, to be able to move and act and are professional. And by virtue of having all this process in place and creating a detailed scope of work immediately signals that this person is a real player and I want to do business with them. And it's amazing how you're able to track good, qualified contractors and tradespeople by virtue of having something as detailed as a scope of work that they understand, hey, we're all on the same page. There's no hocus pocus. There's no gray areas. We're going to go in there. We're going to get the job done. And they'll be very competitive in relation to the work that they see on this scope of work. Another thing that I find difficult, many new real estate investors or just real estate investors in general find is that in losing control over the, the whole renovation rehab process where you know they might've gone through the process of creating this document and they've already negotiated in good faith, but all of a sudden the contractor shows up and then all of a sudden disappears. So the trace person does a little bit of work and they go off to another job site. And that is a common problem that I hear from yeah. many, many people all across yeah. North America. And I've got clients all around, all over the place. And that is a case, the reason for that is because there hasn't been a clear conversation with that tradesperson or contractor, establishing a payment schedule where we understand each other that there's certain milestones will be reached and that that payment would be provided to you. And if you haven't reached that milestone, you haven't reached that percentage of completion, you're not going to receive any money. The difficulties arise when folks, new folks, get out there and you know they they hire that contractor and tradesperson and they give too much money up front and they're always behind the ball. Ellie, if you've got again, I'm speaking as a general contractor, I might have eight, 12 clients that I'm doing work for at as we speak. Trust me and believe me that I'm going to look after and pay much more attention to the client that owes me money versus yeah. that other person that has already that given sense. me lots of money. It makes so much sense, but I, I, so many times I find, especially now in this overheated real estate market, where contracts and tradespeople are not easy to find or do, you know, to identify to get them to quote on your work, that they provide 60 percent down payments. Not a finger has been lifted in the terms of progress or anything associated with the project. Their contractors are demanding fifty percent deposits, and you scratch your head: Why are people providing this? Why are you doing that? I understand a percentage of it may be for buying material, but 50%. The only place where I pay up front is when I go to McDonald's, when I stand in line and I give my money for my hamburger and then I wait for the hamburger to be. Other than that, there are no contractors or tradespeople that are like McDonald's. So you need to structure your payment schedule to reflect that, hey, I'm going to pay you when you complete something. I'm going to pay you when you get complete something. Try to go to your employer and say, hey, Mr. Boss, man, I want you to pay me ahead of time for work that I haven't completed. Try to get, try that and see how far you'll get. Mm -hmm. That's a very, very good point. And I hope you guys are taking notes because these are some serious pearls of wisdom right there from a general contractor. So I love that. And I think it's very, very valuable. I want to then move to our last part of the discussion today, which is about strategy. You've done new construction and you also bought existing properties. When it comes to the strategy, what are the kind of main benefits or what is your favorable strategy? Because, you know, on one hand, you construction, you don't have deferred maintenance and it can attract more tenants. But on the other hand, you also paying premium for that. And when you buy it, you know, as a new construction, you need to deal with lack of cash flow in the immediate term until you bring occupancy up. So, you know, right now my company is buying existing properties, but I'm also looking at new constructions and was always curious to learn from people who have done both what their take is on the different strategies. 
Well, obviously, you nailed it on the head. There's pros and cons to taking either approach. I've constructed and own brand new buildings, as well as I currently am, still am acquiring you know, older ones that, that already exist. There are opportunities in both. I would venture to say that I like the older properties better because ultimately there is a risk factor associated when you're acquiring a brand new property in a new area. And there is a period of time, you're paying a premium to acquire the property because it's brand new, but also same time, it's going to take you a while to be able to fill that building or property up. And by virtue of that period of time that goes by, things can change in the marketplace. We're going through tremendous turmoil right now in the market. And we don't know, nobody has a crystal ball. There are as many individuals, really smart, bright individuals in the industry that are saying that's going to go one way. There's just as many on the other side that say that it's going to go another way. And I don't have a crystal ball. All I can tell you is, is that numbers play an important role in our business where we got to sit down and do some calculations and we got to do a little bit of forecasting. I always recommend and I always do is try to be a conservative side in relation to the number crunching that we have to do to make ultimately a decision whether we want to move forward on a property or not, whether it's brand new or an existing property that's already up. And you got to calculate these things and there's an element of risk in any decision that you're going to make. Mm-hmm. And that's all I can answer. There are opportunities out there every single day, whether it's brand new or whether it's existing in all that's parts true. across North America. I'm an abundant kind of mindset kind of person. And that's through a lot of coaching and training and mentorship that I've done over you know the 30 years I've been doing this. And there's opportunities every single day around us. It's just a matter of, it's a numbers game. You got to sit down and do the arithmetic and ultimately let that lead you in the right direction of what you know course of action you should take. I love that. I love that. I think you're absolutely right. I also have the same you know, mindset, which you know, I call the growth mindset, but I think you're absolutely right. There are opportunities in, you know, with different strategies, different asset classes, different markets, and there's, there are good deals and bad deals in each of them. And it's all, it all boils down to location and numbers. I'm speaking from a lot of years of experience and I, by no means am I an expert. I've made my fair share of great moves and also made some moves that haven't Mm -hmm. worked out and you learn from them and you grow and you continue on. But I can tell you that there are opportunities exist even today in our marketplace, Oliver, It's just a matter of going out there and finding them. I often hear from real estate investors who say, oh, there's nothing out there. It's very difficult. And I don't have that problem. And I'm pretty sure you don't either. Opportunities come across our desk every single day because of the network and individuals that we have created relationships with because we've taken time and effort in creating them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then now every day, I don't go there because I'm semi-retired in my life right now. I've got people who are doing this, but I know that we get deals come across our desk every day. And it's up to us to determine whether we want to move forward or not on them for whatever reason we might, we might not. But there's opportunities to come to us every single day. So that negative mindset should be wiped out of folks. Trust me and believe me, there is somebody that might be, you know, a couple of streets down that's having some difficulties with his property. You know, Mr. Mortgage Payments got a significant repair bill on his property. There are opportunities around us not to take advantage of these individuals, but actually help people. Help and then whether that's on the single family side or on the multifamily side, it's not any different. Right now, there are multifamily landlords who've been in this for 30, 50 years. They're tired. Their buildings you know, require X amount of dollars in repairs. They got a huge tax bill that they're looking at. And they're like, you know what? I'm tired. I want out. And Ellie comes around, knocks on their door, says, hey, let's make a deal. And you make a deal. And it works for you. It works for them. It works for everybody. You create, you know, you create a win-win situation, whether it's creative financing, the seller, you know, VTBs, all that kind of stuff, all that good stuff. 
you can create that opportunity. It exists every single day. That was such a wonderful point. And I really appreciate, Van, the discussion it was really, really interesting from you know your background to the importance of creating a solid process when it comes to the renovation part and then the different, you know, mindset with different strategies, different markets. So I really appreciate, you know, that it's, it's been really, really, you know, really, really interesting discussion for me. And we've moved right now to the last part of the conversation, which is a lightning round questions. And the first one is about your hobby. What is it? I love reading. I am a voracious, I have a voracious appetite for reading. So I, I love autobiographies. I love you know, books like, this might be silly, but you know, books like Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. You know, it's a deal that a lot of people scoff at, they, they, they laugh at, but it was an actually, I remember reading it in the early nineties when he brought it out. And I actually got a couple of nuggets of information from it that I did apply to my business that I saw success from. There's so much, it's really important to get into a habit Anybody who wants to improve in their lives, wants to you know, reach goals, they need to do the self-investments associated with that, which is, you know, you got you to gotta spend money and time on reading and networking and getting in as much information. And also, there's something to be said about coaching and mentorship, that if you really want to get to a certain level or a certain period, some certain place in, in life, it would be nice to rely on somebody who's already done it. You know, reaching out to that individual and bringing them on board and getting you to that step instead of going through the trials and tribulations that, you know, that you have to go through in order to get to that next level. It's mm-hmm. nice to have somebody who's already gone yep. through it and show you the ropes, right? So reading is very important to me and I, I enjoy it. Awesome. And then Ben, what's the one thing that most people don't know about you and you feel comfortable sharing here? I have a need, I don't know why, but I have a need to be I love helping people and I enjoy and when I help people, the appreciation and the gratitude that people mm. get, it really fills my soul. And I've realized that now in my later stages of my life, that that is something that really, really enriches me, makes me, it fills me up with, I love it. I enjoy it. And I don't know, that's a need, that's a need that I, I've realized I've always had in my life. And yeah, so that's something that, that I look for that, that, yeah, that's who I am. I, I can totally relate to that. And I was actually speaking with my husband before I started recording this. And I was basically telling him the same thing that you just shared. So that's very interesting. Interesting coincidence. There's a lot of folks who will say that, you know, why are you doing this? Like you've got, you've got mm-hmm. lots of money and you've yeah. got all this time. Why don't you just go golfing or go, go whittle yeah. a table or a flute? And I do what I do, not because of, of any, it's just because I really enjoy it. I enjoy helping people and it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a no success can really measure to the feeling of the accomplishment and and the good feeling when you're actually having a positive impact on someone's life. It's not, you can't compare them. And I think it takes time when you're hungry at the beginning, it's more about the success. And as you're getting there, you figure out how it feels when you're successful and how it feels when you're involved with other people's lives and you help to improve them. And then you see the difference in the feelings and you get different perspective. But I feel that you need to be successful in order to get to that place where you can really evaluate helping people because then you can see, you know, how do you feel when you make a million dollars and how do you feel when you help someone? Two very different feelings and they do not compare. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Like when I was got started, I was so focused on doing, you know, be, you know, getting, growing my business. And, Mm -hmm. and I, and I neglected a lot of things. I neglected my wife, my family. Heck, I got married and I didn't go on my honeymoon. I went back to work. 
And it wasn't until a while had passed before I actually went on my honeymoon. That's how driven and focused I was. Mm -hmm. And so in retrospect, now in my, you know, where I am right now in my life, I did the reason why I am where I am is because I, because of the support that I have from friends and family, all that kind of stuff. And so now I'm in a happy place. I wanted to give what I can back to my wife and family, but also now I have this urgent need. I really enjoy interacting with people and helping them in their, you know, creating a real estate portfolio that creates, you know, financial freedom for them. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we have time for one last question and it is about your number one advice for real estate investors that want to scale and grow their portfolio, the real estate portfolio this year. What would that be your number one advice? I'm a really big proponent on individuals getting themselves involved in real estate investment association, meetup groups, getting involved in the, you know, in the real estate investment community. But in more in particular, I really encourage folks to, if you really want to get to the point where you've been able to accomplish something, you hire, find a coach, a mm -hmm. mentor that has already done it, that can walk you through, set you up, understand, implement systems and processes. Your successes, Ellie, are a result of being able to create you know, these systems and processes and understanding what are the different elements and variables you can implement or plug in to be able to you know, get a certain result. And so you need experience in that over a period of time to develop that. You can circumvent that by going to and hiring or you know, getting under the wing of a mentor or a coach. And I have seen firsthand because I am a product of a coach and mentorship early, early on in my life. I needed it. And it came at a juncture in my life where I was really burnt out. I was, I was a general contractor and I was running a real estate. And I was flipping houses at the same time. And those two came colliding and I didn't know what the heck to do with myself. I was so overwhelmed with the work. I didn't know what, I didn't have any systems or processes because I came from a mindset of a micromanager because, you know, back mm -hmm. then yeah. in Chicago, we had to do everything, my family, you know, that kind of thing. So I burnt out. It wasn't until I reached out to a coach and I paid him. I paid him a lot of money that was able to sit me down and say, here, kid, this is what you should do. This is what you're doing wrong. This is what, and get me out of that mindset that I was. And then things just exploded. Things just opened up. It was amazing what happened afterwards. And I continued that self-education through books. I calculate I must have spent, I've, up to this point, spent over $200,000 on mentorship, coaching, weekend retreats, you know, all that kind of stuff. And all of my successes up to this point and, you know, the happiness in my life is a result of those interactions, those investments that I made in myself. So I encourage people to do that. Amazing. And I think this is such an important advice. So if you guys are listening, this is a really good advice to take and implement because I can tell you, you know, firsthand, this investing in your education, in your investment in real estate education pays off. And it pays off, of course, if you take and implement the lessons that you're learning. But I highly, highly recommend it. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today. If the listeners would like to reach out to you and talk to you, how can they find you? Well, I have a website that's vansturgeon.com. I've got a lot of information in terms of podcasts I've been on, articles that I've written that have been published in a bunch of areas. And also, there's a free training that I'm offering to folks that really want to understand the process of planning and managing a renovation that should help people being able to carry out a successful renovation rehab where they're in control. And I also have a couple of free doodads like free renovation calculator that you can download and also ebooks that I've written as well. So I strongly recommend them also on Facebook. You can find me, Van Sturgeon, and I love to connect with people. And again, I enjoy questions. I enjoy interacting with, with investors. So if you have any questions or issues, reach out to me and I'll do what I can to help you out. 
All right, Ben Sturgeon, thank you so much for the discussion. I enjoyed it, and I hope that you did too. Well, no, thank you very much for having me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.